0: People disappear all the time. They leave their homes and never return. For those who seek to do evil and get away with it, many times all it takes is a diversion or distraction. Ill intent provided with opportunity is never a good match. And when a con artist needed to find the perfect distraction to commit his crimes, he could not have planned a better opportunity than the 1893 World's Fair in the city he now called home. People disappear all the time, and people were in and out of the White city, so it was easier for people to just vanish. And it just so happened that the man, who was now operating under the alias of Dr. Henry Holmes, planned to continue his crimes now in the carnival atmosphere of a home rigged to be a murder castle. Yes, people disappear all the time, and even by the end of this episode, we will not know the exact number of people H.H. H. Holmes killed across his career. This may be a show called God's Favorites, but this man was a demon. This is God's Favorites, a history podcast. It's time for our spooky-themed episode voted on by you, the listener. Today, we take a look at the crimes of American serial killer H.H. Holmes. The old saying goes, tinker, tailor, soldier, spy, but in the case of H.H. H. Holmes, you'll find his life story to be more of a case of con men, doctor, killer, and lies. Born Herman Webster Mudgett on May 16, 1861 in New Hampshire, our future H.H. H. Holmes was placed amongst a pretty affluent family by birth. He was known for being quite smart and witty, but was frequently bullied for this by his classmates. His father was also known to be abusive and a drunk. His mother, a schoolteacher, was said to be cold and distant and used religion as a tool of punishment. But when the physical violence got to be too much, Holmes would run off in the woods. But there, Holmes found a new, deranged hobby. He would capture animals and bring them home to dissect. What could have been perceived as an interest in anatomy or science would soon take a turn. Once young Herman discovered that he enjoyed torturing these animals. It's a pretty normal phenomenon that has been documented in serial killers across history. Torturing of animals can often lead to hunting humans, and though we cannot prove it, there's plenty of reason to believe that Holmes hurt his childhood friend Tom. It could have been curiosity, or maybe it truly was an accident, but we don't know for sure. You see, Holmes was 11 when he witnessed his friend Tom die by falling from a ledge. But there's plenty of speculation that tom was pushed potentially giving the future serial killer his very first kill but holmes learned to masquerade as a smart person and learned to charm women oh he was smart but not as smart as he pretended to be his big first con would involve preying upon women in 1878 holmes married clara levering the daughter of a wealthy man clara was lucky and that even though Holmes only wanted her for financial game, he left her alive when he was finished with her. Holmes enrolled at the University of Michigan's medical school, using her family's money. Neighbors would remember that Holmes would brutally beat Clara, but she managed to eventually escape back to her family and never heard from him again. But from this, Holmes learned something here, that Taking advantage of women was a way to make money, in a sense. They would bring their fortunes and lay them at their feet. Unfortunately for some, it would be their end. As for his studies, Holmes was described as a mediocre student. He worked in the school's anatomy lab under one of his professors, and it was there that Holmes learned of another side gig, a quick buck. One could make some money, Engaging in grave robbing and selling those cadavers to the school. Modern science has a lot of paperwork that is required to sell one's body for research, but you can imagine at the turn of the 20th century, no one asked a lot of questions. And if no one asked questions about bodies turning up at medical schools, Holmes came up with an entirely new scam from this revelation. Taking out life insurance policies on corpses. To this day... On multiple insurance agency training websites, they list Holmes as an example of a client from hell, as an intro for future agents to learn the signs of fraudulent behavior. It's disrespectful for the dead. We could at least appreciate the hustle if he had stopped there. Lots of people were robbing graves back then for a quick buck. This scheme manifested in him taking an insurance policy on a, quote, dear loved one, and then turning up with the body to collect the money. He would steal cadavers from the laboratory, burn and disfigure them. Then he would plant the bodies to be found, making it look as though they had been in an accident. Holmes would only confess to this many years later. But as he moved from town to town, a few mysteries followed Holmes around. As he worked in New York, he was often accompanied by a young boy, but that boy disappeared, and when people started asking where he went, Holmes said he'd run away. And then he quickly left town. In Pennsylvania, a young boy died taking medicine from a pharmacy in which Holmes worked. Again... No concrete evidence, but very squarely suspicious. Holmes left a lot of bodies lying around. In 1884, Holmes passes his medical exams, and in 1885, he moved to Chicago, where he got a job working at a pharmacy under the alias Dr. Henry H. Holmes. Now, when the owner of the drugstore passed away, he left his wife to take over the responsibilities of the store. However, Holmes convinced the widow to let him buy the store. So he said... You see, the widow soon went missing and was never seen again. Now, Holmes claimed that she moved to California, but, of course, this could never be verified. And Holmes continued to try to hedge his bet with women. He married a Minneapolis woman while still married to Clara. He never divorced her. He tried to, alleging infidelity, but the papers were never served. But this woman named Myrta Belknap would have one daughter with Holmes, but this would not even be Holmes' last tap dance into polygamy. Polygamist and con man he may be. Definitely a thief. Architecture. As he worked in that pharmacy, he spotted a place across the road that was screaming for a majestic home to be built upon. One where Holmes could indulge his dark desires and do what he wanted without worrying about those around him. He must have convinced Murda that this was another great chance to make money by building a massively large hotel. Some even called it a castle. Holmes' murder castle is the stuff of American horror legend, but in many cases, the crimes that occurred there were involving frauds, games, and people he knew, luring them to the World's Fair, but the home provided a sinister stage for him to, to carry out his evil whims with no witnesses. He swindled money from the drugstore where he worked and bought that lot to build the complex structure of the home with labyrinth rooms. On the first floor, there were some shops and some small apartments. It's important to note, as historians, the reliability of journalism at this time isn't always the most trustworthy, but there were dizzying halls and soundproof rooms, allegedly. Some rooms were said to be equipped with trap doors that doubled as body shoots when homes needed to secretly and quietly remove a corpse. They could fall down into vats of acid to melt away flesh, so potentially you could sell a skeleton to a medical school. Some rooms were reported to have suffocating gas pipes. To be clear, the Murder Castle stories sold papers, but when it comes to claims that Holmes killed nearly 200 people behind its walls, it's best to take that with a grain of salt. Holmes would claim he killed 27 women, but some of those victims later turned up alive. Sorry for bursting the bubble for this spooky season here, but at the end of the day, Holmes was a liar, and so were most American media outlets at the time. And as much as I would love to get into every single case here, we're going to focus on the most well-known. And that is the story of Minnie Williams. Minnie and her sister Anna also known by her pet name of Nanny. Listen, if you listened to last podcast on the left, you know I am resisting the urge to throw out that Minnie and Nanny skit that they do, but you'll have to go listen to that series on your own time. It's excellent, I highly recommend it. Some sources say those two were born to a poor family in Mississippi, where the father died, and eventually they were sent to live with other family members. I found newspaper reports that said the father was incredibly wealthy, and Holmes' accounts basically blame Minnie Williams for a lot of his own crimes, so have to piece this together as best we can. There will also be claims that Minnie and H.H. H. Holmes wed, but there's no proof of it, Perhaps secretly if at all. But at any rate, no matter where it came from, Minnie was left around $20,000 and some land in Texas. Around 1890, when Minnie would go to Chicago where she would meet and according to him at least fall in love with H.H. H. Holmes his paid confession and writing in his own words stated that Minnie was actually the person who killed her own sister in a jealous rage and that Minnie fled the country while he threw Nanny's body in the lake. He would also try to come back around and say that Minnie was alive in Europe and that when these tells didn't get the attention that Holmes wanted, he would later state that he killed Minnie and that she would transfer some land to a man named Alexander Bond, which would turn out to be another alias Holmes was using. This story is as confusing as all get out. Anything that Holmes says about Minnie, you should take with a grain of salt. Holmes would later use the land given to him by Minnie Williams to woo Georgiana Yokes, his third wife. Now, keep in mind, Holmes had not divorced Clara or murder yet. And though Holmes seems to have no issues with disposing of other women incredibly easily, his three wives would all survive. Now, speaking of weddings, in 1893, Nanny arrived to go to the wedding of her sister. You see, her sister that Holmes had already killed. Minnie was already gone by this point. Given his propensity to use women for financial gain and given Minnie's inheritance, this feels like the most likely story. Nanny had come thinking her sister was going to marry this man she met in Chicago. Holmes had already killed Minnie, he said, by suffocating her with chloroform and tossing her body down a chute. And when Nanny arrived, he said he pushed her into an airtight vault, but not before taking all the money she had on her person. Nanny never saw Minnie, and she slowly suffocated to death. He would confess to also tracking down the girl's brother, Baldwin Williams, to commit yet another fraudulent life insurance scam, naming his already dead sister Minnie as the beneficiary. Holmes said he tracked him down in Oklahoma and just poisoned him. Now you kind of know how Holmes evolved from just these scams of taking a body and making it look like they had been killed in an accident to murder. But it wouldn't be murder that got him on the radar of authorities. It would be arson insurance fraud. He would be arrested for that in Chicago in 1893, but then Holmes decided to bounce. People like Holmes just cannot resist one last final scam, and it will be the one last final scam that gets Holmes caught. And while I don't like to advise people on how to commit crimes, this is for educational purposes only. God's favorites, a history podcast, does not condone committing crimes. I just want to say that the worst way to commit a crime seems to be bringing on a co-conspirator. And the co-conspirator's entire family. Extreme example of two people can keep a secret if one's dead. This is how this goes. Holmes met a carpenter named Benjamin Peitzel who was trying to sell a coal bin he had invented in Chicago at the World's Fair. Despite what sounds like a legitimate business upstart, Peitzel had a criminal past and when he met Holmes, who had some ideas on how to make a quick buck, he was intrigued. The stories that led to the catastrophic end of a significant portion of the Peitzel family are muddled by the fact that Holmes often changes his own story again. The authorities were starting to close in on Holmes for fraud related to construction, this time at the property he was planning on building in Fort Worth, Texas, and of course the arson in Chicago. Now, after spending a small amount of time in jail in St. Louis, Holmes came up with a plan to fake his own death for insurance plans with the help of an inmate who would also eventually help aid authorities in his capture, Marion Hedgepeth. Now, the insurance company did not settle for Hedgepath and Holmes' initial plot, So, Holmes reached out to Benjamin Peitzel to come up with a similar insurance scheme. Peitzel didn't realize that he would serve as the replacement corpse for one of Holmes' stolen cadavers. And the story, as best we can tell, takes place after the pair head to Philadelphia. Peitzel works with Holmes to fake his own death for a $10,000 life insurance policy using the alias of B.F. Perry. Peitzel's wife would have likely had a lot of knowledge about this scam to play along, but the answer contradicts across several sources as to exactly how much she knew. B.F. Perry would be killed in a lab explosion, and the understanding was that Holmes would steal a body and do the same thing he had done before, staging an accident. Peitzel likely trusted Holmes wholeheartedly, making it easier for Holmes to knock him out with chloroform and then set his body on fire with other lab chemicals. Holmes would collect the payout but told widow Carrie Peitzel that she would need to come and, quote, make a positive identification of the body. Remember, Carrie Peitzel would think her husband was still alive. But at the time, she was unwell. She kept her eldest daughter home to help her with the youngest and then instead sent her 14-year-old daughter Alice to identify the body. But with Carrie ill and likely desperately in need of the money from the insurance scheme, Alice, and eventually two other younger siblings, Nellie and Howard, were placed in Holmes' care. Now, why anyone thought this was a good idea, I don't know. And remember, the events are confusing because there are a lot of liars here. But Holmes keeps the three kids with him. But when communications dry up, Carrie does go searching for Holmes and her children. She believed her husband to still be alive, as Holmes had sent her about $500 of the payout up front. Eventually, an agency... Fidelity Mutual Assurance Company, would take the step of hiring the Pinkerton Detective Agency, who began trying to track down Holmes and the children. In correspondence with Kerry, Holmes would lie about his whereabouts frequently, all the while taking the three children with him on the rails up into Canada and back down into the United States. Carey trailed and nearly caught up with Holmes once, but could never quite catch him What exactly his motive was other than keeping the family from figuring out that one Peitzel was actually dead is not clear. Holmes had also cut off an identifying birthmark off the corpse of B.F. Perry so that it couldn't be pinpointed as Peitzel. But with the Pinkertons on his trail, it wouldn't take long. When they found Holmes, eventually, he was in Boston ready to flee with his quote-unquote wife, Georgiana, who had no clue any of this was going on. Imagine the shock. She also found out pretty quickly that she was not Holmes' only wife. But in order to keep Holmes from panicking and quieting down, he was told strictly that this was an investigation into horse theft. But when they found him, they noted none of the three Pitzel children were with him. It did take a while to find all the bodies. But eventually, after all was said and done, Holmes would eventually confess to having killed the girls in Toronto in November of 1894, Their remains would eventually be recovered. The son, Howard, stayed with Holmes for a little time longer, but eventually he met his sister's fate in a cottage in Indiana. All that was found of him was his teeth. Holmes had apparently burned the body up. When I explain this part to our modern true crime listeners here, please remember, forensic science was not as foolproof as it is now. Because despite the series of deaths that Holmes seemed to have connected to him, authorities only felt confident in trying him on one case, the death of Benjamin Peitzel. Holmes' murder trial started on October 28, 1895. Defense attorneys William A. Shoemaker and Samuel Roden requested a postponement because they didn't have sufficient time to prepare. So they said. Namely, it was because no one wanted to testify for the defense. Even his quote-unquote wives, Georgiana and Myrta, testified for the prosecution. And the trial was bombarded by sensationalist press and people who tried to wander in with false stories. There was a Chicago playwright named Robert Corbett coming in with claims, some he attributed to Holmes himself, that some of the murder castle victims were living abroad, happily. They weren't dead. So if those people were still alive, perhaps Holmes was innocent. And yes, those rumors of victims killed in Holmes' labyrinth house were loudly shouted. Investigators could only find small, inconsequential evidence tying the known missing victims to the location. The Chicago police could find nothing to pin on Holmes in those cases. And with the physical evidence being limited in the deaths of the three Peitzel children, the state picked the one they were certain they could get him on, which was Benjamin Peitzel. And it for sure worked because Holmes was convicted on November 3rd, 1895 and was sentenced to be hanged. Enter William Randolph Hearst. If you follow me for a minute on TikTok, you know I detest this man. Hearst was not ready to let the story die like Holmes was about to. So he offered him $7,500 to write his confessions exclusively for Hearst newspapers. Son of Sam laws weren't a thing yet. And this is just another part of why Holmes's stories are so convoluted. Because Hearst paid a documented liar to write an article where he confessed to 27 murders in total in Chicago, Indianapolis, and Toronto. Not to mention pre-trial confessions written by Mr. Holmes. So what exists are multiple ghost stories and tales that may not even be true. Those stories died with Holmes when he was hanged on May seventh, 1896. He was reported to be calm, but... His neck did not break. He was slowly strangled to death, and his body spasmed for several minutes. Doctors made sure his heart had stopped before they could cut him down. Holmes was dead. But Hearst and others spewed conspiracy theories that are still discussed today, including a theory that Holmes was Jack the Ripper. I have feelings on this one. Getting extra close to the microphone so you can feel how much I hate this theory. I am confident that the theory that Holmes was Jack the Ripper is stupid. It's absolutely incorrect. And we have no evidence Holmes ever made it to London. And the M.O. is completely different. Holmes killed efficiently. And for financial gain. Jack, whoever he was, just liked to make a mess. In the years following the events, the murder castle would be set on fire by arsonists. Two men were seen running from the home. For years... The frame stood there, empty, burned out. Eventually, it was torn down, and now on the side of the murder castle stands a post office. We don't know exactly how many people were killed by H.H. Holmes, but we know he was a liar, never as clever as he thought he seemed to be. It seems fitting that he asked to be buried in concrete after his death because he was so afraid someone would steal his body. Ironically, it wouldn't matter, as Holmes was exhumed in 2017 by researchers to investigate whether or not Holmes had actually escaped his execution, faking his own death. Wait for it. another theory that was running rampant in press at the time. The concrete had preserved lots of his features, and scientists were able to tell by Holmes's teeth that they had the right man. And now to close out this tell, I'll leave you with a story of one more fire. Don't worry, Holmes is dead. He didn't set this one. But in November 1897, a fire badly damaged Fidelity Mutual Assurance Company's building in Philadelphia on Walnut Street. This was the agency Holmes used to take a life insurance policy out on Benjamin Peitzel, and where his crimes were discovered pretty quickly, the offices were destroyed. One of the people who had begun the investigation into Holmes' crimes had his office completely destroyed. While sifting through the rubbish, however, they found one thing that survived a framed photograph of H.H. H. Holmes. God's Favorites is a bi-weekly podcast. Hey, we did it on a bi-weekly schedule this time. Look at us go. I want to give an acknowledgement in this episode to thank Darius Shafa, and I can honestly say that this episode would not have come out on time if it had not been for him. He has saved my life this weekend by helping me outline this um, and give me some great sources in addition to what I was already using. It was very, very needed this week. Thank you, friend. You are amazing. Let's get to some sources. Obviously, Eric Larson's Devil in the White City. If you have not read this book, one, it's a more in-depth dive, but it also pairs this with the telling of how Chicago got the world fair in 1893. I will be an Eric Larson fan for the rest of my life. This man is incredible. Go buy all his books. Go read all his books. I'm sure this is the name of a town, so I'm going to butcher it. But uh, Shookle Valley Shook-o- Shook-o- Valley Journal Online and their fantastic article on H.H. Holmes' murder trial by Joseph Tyson Third. It's incredibly well documented. And if I just butchered the name of that town, I'm sorry. Don't make fun of people who learn words from reading now. The Chicago Tribune article by William Lee, 130 years later, was H.H. Holmes' murder castle myth I think it was William Lee I think it was the Library of Congress's timeline into this case and if you get a chance you should really go back and read some of the articles um, that are out from this time period on this case because you'll see what I mean by this is just craziness craziness if I make it and I end up in hell uh, the first person I'm fighting is William Randolph Hearst it's on I hope you guys really enjoyed the spooky history topic that you all picked this year. It was fun. It's a little complicated for, a, you know, 45 minute or so episodes, so. If you wanna learn more about it, I highly recommend you go listen to the last podcast on the Left series. I think it's like a five part, so they go into literally everything. Um, dark humor, be warned, but I, I love those guys. And I'm still figuring out what topics I wanna to do in the new year. I have some good ideas, so we'll keep going on that. Thank you to everyone who donates to our Patreon. That money is used to buy books, get around paywalls when we have to, pay for music licensing and streaming fees, the things you don't even think of when you're thinking of starting a podcast. It's always greatly appreciated. What am I doing next time? I haven't decided yet. I'll keep you posted. As always. See you next time, friends.